Good morning. Um, thanks to Pastor Tim for the invitation to um, come see you all. Uh, my wife, Laura, is here with me today, and we have two kids with Grandma and Grandpa, but four of the six are also here with me, so we you know, rented a couple horses to pull the carriage so we could save some gas money and get over here uh, from Lafayette. Um, it's good to be with you all. Today's sermon is for sufferers and would-be sufferers. Um, I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen your faith. Um, knowing I can't remove the difficulty. I cannot tell you when it's going to end. I can't tell you precisely why it's happening. Um, but I can try to point you to Jesus this morning. Um, we've had a lot of prayers today. It's probably okay to have another one. So let me pray again. Lord, uh, I invite your help. I ask for it. I pray that your word would have power. Uh, Lord, my fear is that this could be, could feel like an academic exercise or simply uh, philosophy or dry theology. And, and Lord, for that to not happen, we need your word to speak to hearts. Um, Lord, we, we don't want to trivialize suffering. I, I don't want to um, say things that sound dismissive. God, I know there are people hurting in the room, and that hurt is so real. Lord, we invite you by your Spirit to encourage us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Christianity is for sufferers, for people who face affliction. Um, we don't pretend that going to church is going to make all your problems go away. Um, we don't pretend that suffering is just some kind of illusion that you have to rise above and speak it out of existence. Instead, we worship a God who, even though he's God, in the person of Jesus Christ, experienced enormous suffering and affliction. That's a very shocking thing to say about God. We worship a God who meets us in our troubles, who visits us in affliction, a God who dwells in a high and holy place, yes, and also with him of a contrite and lowly spirit. Our God's not surprised or thwarted by our tribulations. He uses them to fulfill profound purpose. In fact, God goes so far as to say, we can rejoice and see ourselves as blessed in the midst of pain and reproach and affliction. So how on earth do we have that mindset? What are some ways uh, we can carry on and not lose heart when things are very, very hard? There is a real danger um, when affliction comes in our lives. In, in Jesus' parable of the sower, you recall some of the seeds fell on rocky soil. And that's the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I pray that no one in this room falls away because of tribulation or persecution, but that your faith proves to be genuine through the testing. What's the source of suffering? There's a few possibilities. 1 Peter 4 says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay, so 
I'm assuming they're, it's unlikely there's anyone suffering today because of a murder they previously committed, um, but some suffering is a direct consequence, a direct result of our own sinful choices. Um, could be the natural consequences of our actions, even if those actions are simply meddling or being a busybody, as Peter puts it. Uh, or, if we're talking about breaking the law, then suffering might come as a direct result of governing authorities acting as an avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. A lot of suffering is simply the result, though, of living in a fallen world. What Romans 8 calls creation groaning under the effects of the corruption and decay due to evil, due to Adam's fall. So our bodies wear out. They don't work the way they should. We get sick. We experience pain, accidents, natural disasters. The world's falling apart all around us, and we're not immune from the effects. So what we experience in our physical, not yet redeemed bodies is this steady reminder that death and sorrow and brokenness is in our world. Why are some born with disabilities? What's the source of their suffering? Is that a consequence for doing something bad? Did their parents do something wrong when Jesus was asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we certainly don't attribute every problem to individual sin. Scripture also singles out some suffering as a direct consequence of being a faithful Christian. Suffering that comes not in spite of the fact that you're following Jesus, actually because you decided to follow Jesus. And that's a significant thing. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so I would ask, if you're following Jesus today, um, what has it cost you? What are you suffering because of that? What might it cost you? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus if it comes? So suffering might result for several reasons, personal sin, decaying world, or even the choice to follow Jesus. But how do we respond because it's bound to come? What does God have to say to us in the middle of it? Our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, I invite you to turn there, 2 Corinthians 4. Um, we will be frequently flipping back a few pages to chapter 1, which was the scripture reading. Seems like Paul is repeating a lot of the themes he mentioned in chapter 1 again in chapter 4. So 2 Corinthians 4, we'll start at verse 7. The question is, in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of suffering, what must we remind ourselves of to not lose heart, as Paul says? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. 
we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This passage gives us quite a few reasons why we should not lose heart in suffering. Uh, If you look back at the beginning of chapter 4, back up at uh, verse 1, he begins by saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul was in a unique category as an apostle. His ministry was special. And I, I wonder, did Paul think, I would be so much more effective in my ministry if I didn't have all these trials, all this suffering. Um, think, of, think about how that is holding back what I could be doing for all these churches. Although it doesn't seem like Paul thought that way. He doesn't talk that way. Instead, his confidence was in his calling, in his ministry. That was a reason to not lose heart. And I would say if you're a believer, you have a role to play in the church. God has a specific calling on you to fulfill in service to his church, a ministry, a purpose for you. That's a reason to not lose heart. Your brothers and sisters need you. We need your ministry. And that ministry is by the mercy of God. Remember the mercy of God. No matter how terrible your circumstances, I can confidently say that it is not the worst thing you ever faced. Because at one point, you were living your life blind to the reality of your sin, trapped under the spell of Satan, unable to rest yourself, completely unaware that if you passed into eternity, you would be totally unready to face a holy God who would condemn you. But God is rich in mercy, and he saved you from that. God delivered you from your greatest trial, the biggest danger you have ever been in, and he showed you great mercy. So will you trust him in your current affliction? Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This this glorious awareness that he talks about previously in chapter 4, that God supernaturally shined in our hearts, that's a treasure. And it's in us, a bunch of dirty pots. Our weaknesses, our heartaches, our weariness, Dealing with this messy world is a constant reminder that you're just a clay jar. And that's intended to show that God's the one with power, not us. Um, if everything in my life was perfect, would I, would I praise God continuously for it and view myself as so weak and dependent on Him? No. Would God be kind to deliver me from that? See, God has every right to show me he's the one in charge. And the outcome will be faith in his power, not my power. Lord, I'm, I'm desperate. I know, I know there's nothing I can do to deal with this problem. You're the one with surpassing power. 
We see this in, in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians in the scripture reading. 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, We felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Okay, so don't be proud in your suffering. I can handle this. It's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt that much. I'm tough. I'm resilient. I can do this. I'm a fighter. I'll find a way to make it work. No, recognize your clay pottedness and rely on the one with power. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The pain's very real, right? Have you experienced any of these? It kind of covers all the categories. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. But Paul says, not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. And in our trial, we remind ourselves that Jesus will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench that faintly burning wick. Isaiah 42. Be strong and courageous. He will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. When God saved you, he promised to make you like Jesus. Your life is intended to look like Jesus. So who Jesus was is to be manifested, demonstrated, displayed in your experiences in this world. So we got to ask, what, what was Jesus' life like? Everybody loved him. He was never inconvenienced, never had to deal with difficult people, suffered no injustices, had no problems. Or was he a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, rejected, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, oppressed, pierced, crushed, put to grief in anguish of soul, poured out to death? Isaiah 53. When you decide to follow someone, you agree to become like them. And so when you decided to follow Jesus, I don't know if you knew this is what you were signing up for, but when you decided to follow Jesus, you agreed to, as Philippians 3.10 says, share his sufferings, become like him in his death. Or as 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And so we don't lose heart in suffering because our suffering identifies us with Jesus. It manifests Jesus, the suffering servant to our world. We show the world something about who Jesus is when we share in his sufferings. And when we suffer, you know, we often go to, why would God treat me this way? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Doesn't he love me? And if you're going to ask those questions, then you should ask these questions too. Was Jesus loved by God? 
Was God pleased with Jesus? Did he care about what Jesus was going through? You know, the, the cross reminds us that God loves us because, after all, he died for us and he demonstrated his love to us while we were sinners. But the cross also reminds us that God loves us when we are suffering because even the Son, deeply loved by the Father, endured suffering, crucifixion. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Don't miss that. According to what has been written, we have the same spirit of faith, as he says, as God's people from all ages, including those who wrote our scriptures. And the psalmist is the one he's referring to here as the one who believed and spoke. And what exactly was it that he said when he spoke? Well, this is our call to worship. This is from Psalm 116, verse 10. The psalmist spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I'm greatly afflicted. And so Paul remembers the help, the comfort he draws from the prayers and the songs of the Psalms. And when we're suffering, we do well to remember to do likewise. The Psalms teach us how to lament, how to pour out our soul to God, how to ask God to be with us in our misery, to be moved by the spirit of faith, to have that courage to believe and speak out of our great affliction. So the encouragement this morning is don't lose heart, but to lament your affliction. Learn the biblical language of lament. Turn to God. Bring Him your complaints. Ask Him boldly. Choose to trust Him. Go to the Psalms. Read them. Reread them. Pray them. Sing them. Memorize them. And like David, believe and also speak. Verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This morning I don't have three points. We're just following the text, and here's another encouragement, okay? So the resurrection. Paul goes there too. The resurrection gives confidence to sufferers. And again, as we saw in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 9, where it says, to make us rely on God who raises the dead. God who raises the dead. We don't lose heart. God raises the dead. Um, Psalm 116, again, that he was quoting from, the previous verse says, You delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist had resurrection hope. Um, in a book I'm reading right now, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, uh, Pastor Mark Vrogop writes, His crucifixion and resurrection remind me that he bought the right to make everything right. I long for the day when a little grave in Grafeshap Cemetery will yield the body of my daughter and my faith will be sight. While I expectantly wait, I lament. So Christians don't lose hope in affliction because 
we don't even lose hope over death itself. Okay? It doesn't get much worse. But we believe in a resurrection. We remind ourselves that God raised Jesus from the dead and He will raise us too. Death will not be the final word. That's not how the story ends. And pain, suffering, grief, tribulation, all of that, that is not how the story ends. And the resurrection gives us confidence that that is true, and so we don't lose heart. Verse 15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In what ways are you suffering for the sake of the gospel, spreading to more and more people? And, well, if, that, if that's a hard question to answer, maybe I'll say it this way. Um, your trial is intended to increase thanksgiving. It's one of the purposes. Okay? Which means God gets more and more glory and praise from more and more people. The question, why, why should you ask others for prayer in your trial, in your affliction, in your suffering? Um, is it because... Um, God is more likely to respond if you get enough people to pray for it. Kind of like a petition on change.org. Okay, like we can just, I can just get enough people, then, may, then maybe then God will, something will change. Um, or is it maybe the case that if a lot of people pray, then a lot of people are going to have an opportunity to give God glory, and as the text says, increase thanksgiving, 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Okay? So we say, you know, God, if, um, you know, if you delivered me right now from this suffering, I'm kind of worried that not enough people will know about it. So I recognize this trial is not just for me, it's not just about me. It's intended for the believers all around me to have an opportunity to thank you and praise you and glorify you as the one that we came to in this affliction because we know that you hear us. And thanksgiving is multiplied. And many and many and many give praise to God. And so you may not know how to pray in your suffering, and that's another great reason to ask others to pray for you. But think of the glory God gets when so many offer him praise for the way he was with us through our afflictions. Jesus taught this in the parable of the persistent widow, where he said they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What's Paul mean by this language of our inner self, our inner man? Uh, we see this elsewhere. Romans 7.22 says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my inner man, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So I delight in the law of God in my inner man. Or Ephesians 3.16 mentions this. May, may God the Father grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, in your inner man, your inner self so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, so what is this, your inner self? I think Paul's referring here to that new creation, the change that you experienced as a born-again believer so that the Spirit of God is now transforming your inner man. 
God's at work within you. Okay? But when you were born again, um, nothing magically happened to your body, did it? Still gets old, still wastes away, still going to die. And when you were born again, nothing magically happened to the world around you, the decaying world around you. It's still corrupt. It's still ruled by the God of this age. Okay, so understand that your inner self, that new creation work in you is being renewed day by day. And so Colossians 3.10 can say that you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And the point here, I think, is this. Your suffering can't touch that. Your affliction can't go there, can't destroy it. The pain that you endure, it may take a very real toll on your body, on your health, on your mind, on your relationships, on your family, on your bank account, but it can't touch your salvation. It can't steal your soul. It can't remove God's spirit from you. It can't snatch you from being united to Christ. Your affliction will never take you out of God's family. And so Christ dwells in your heart, your inner man, and that work of God is being renewed, as he says, day by day. Draw confidence from that. Don't lose heart. You are secure in your inner self. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He calls it light affliction. Much like Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, you know, let's be honest, after all, we are at church. Um, Some of the things we complain about are light affliction, okay? Especially in our culture and in our current moment in history. Um, It's shocking sometimes what minor inconveniences some people will um, view as tremendous suffering, um, unimaginable horror. And yet they're somehow oblivious to the very real atrocities happening around the world. Um, you know, it's, it's like being upset that your vacation got canceled because a, a world war is breaking out. Um, so it's very helpful to put things in perspective and realize that, yeah, some troubles are pretty light. And what about this other phrase, momentary affliction? Yes, many trials we deal with are Thankfully, praise God, short-lived. I think the best advice I can give to new parents is that everything is just a stage, okay? I know in the middle of it, you think this will just, life, it will always be this way. And yes, eventually your kid will stop doing that thing. Eventually this phase will pass. Um, It does change. It won't always be this way. Storms do pass. Daybreak does come. Affliction is momentary. But we got to ask, what about affliction that doesn't seem light? What about suffering that goes on for decades with no end in sight? Is that momentary affliction? Um, you know, if, in fact, earlier in chapter 1, Paul doesn't seem to describe his suffering in such seemingly dismissive terms. Um, He says, we don't want you, this is verse 8 of chapter 1, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And look at how he describes it. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
we felt we had received the sentence of death. Later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, speaking of his afflictions, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then go into chapter 12, and he describes the thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me. And are you going to say, so Paul, was all that stuff light, momentary? If you're, and if you have a friend who's dealing with something really terrible, should you tell her, it's just light and momentary? Um, about as good as Job's friends, right? So the point of our... Our verse, affliction is light and momentary, but only if there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the phrase there in the Greek is unusual. It's exceeding unto exceeding. It's not momentary. It's eternal. It's not light. It's a weight. It's not affliction. It's glory an eternal weight of glory that's exceeding unto exceeding. And how, how glorious must the reward be if my affliction can be called light and momentary? That's where your heart must go. Is this life all there is? Is this all I get? It seems like many who identify as Christians think and live like this life is all they get. I think much of our talk in our society, you know, about unfairness and, and equity and, and, you know, the all too prevalent sins of covetousness and envy, a lot of that is rooted in a view that if we don't address every single disparity or injustice in this life, then it will never be made right. This life is all you get. In the church, we, we talk a lot about believing that Jesus was really here on earth he died for sinners. He rose again. The resurrection is real. In other words, you know, believe these historical events really happen. In fact, we often call that the gospel. Maybe if you just affirm all those things, that's what it means to call Jesus Lord. That to have faith means just that you believe these historical events happened surrounding Jesus. Okay, but there's more than that. Do we have faith to believe what Jesus is doing right now? And do we have faith about what will happen in the future? Do we believe God's promises about those things? Are we confident that, yes, Jesus lived, He died, He rose again, but He's ascended, He's declared to be Lord, He's King right now, He's ruling over it all, and He will come back, and He will judge the living and the dead. That this isn't all we get. There's an eternal weight of glory coming. Accounts will be settled. We'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're in Christ, that should not terrify you. It, should you. it should make you rejoice that God will one day exceedingly exceed all of your afflictions with an eternal weight of glory. And so when the psalmist says, 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? No, it's not forever. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me forever? No, he won't. There is an eternal weight of glory. Jesus said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in the day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Peter writes that we should rejoice as we share Christ's sufferings so that we can rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so we come to the last verse here of the chapter, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so what's he talking about? What's seen and transient, what's unseen and eternal? Um, and I think there's room for confusion here. Is he saying that, you know, that the physical world is somehow less real and valuable than some unseen higher dimension, and that like we should somehow try to rise above our earthly reality? Okay, and, and this would be some kind of like Gnostic dualism idea that physical created matter itself is bad. If I can see it, ooh, it's bad. Physical matter, icky. Okay. He can't be saying that, okay? Because he believes the resurrection is important. That the physical body of Jesus was raised and transformed and remade, and our physical bodies will be raised. That's important to God, to do something with these physical bodies. Just not say, oh, physical matter, gross. Okay? We saw that in verse 14. He goes on after this text in chapter 5 to say more about the resurrection. So in chapter 5, verse 4, while we are still in this tent, meaning our physical bodies, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, like, I don't even need a body at all. No, but that we would be further clothed, like a resurrection body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so when he says what is seen and what is unseen, it's not just simply like physical, spiritual. Here's what I think Paul's emphasizing. What do we see? We see efforts to be faithful, obedient, to honor God, met with disdain, persecution, increased hardship, more problems, more difficulty. We see a world that's full of suffering, not the way it should be. We see the nation's rage and wars and pandemics, and atrocities go unpunished, and powerful taking advantage of weak, and different people operating by different rules, and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what we see now. And we see physical bodies that have disabilities, that have diseases, and cancers, and brain injuries, and failing eyesight, and loss of hearing, and injuries that don't heal right. We see our earthly tent wasting away. What else do we see? We see vanity of vanities, a life's work, trying to make a name for yourself that no one's going to remember after you're dead. Hours of futile effort in vain, trying to help people who don't want to be helped, parenting wayward children, lengthy projects that you worked on, you worked on, and then a windstorm takes it out overnight. Treasures that rust, rust get eaten by moths, are stolen. We try to get influence, we try to gain approval, we try to exert influence, we try to reform government, we try to change culture, we try to build better things, and then it just kind of gets undone overnight. 
vanity. That's what we see. And every person, believer or not, in their soul knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. There is an ought here. The world ought not be this way. Is everything transient? Does nothing have any kind of weight, weightiness to it? Is there nothing that's really glorious? Is this all there is? No. The things that are seen are transient. But there are things unseen that are eternal. So we don't lose heart. All will be made right one day. No. Not just right. All will be made glorious, exceeding to the exceeding one day. You know, in the, in the previous chapter, Paul reminds us that, that Moses went up on a mountain and it was glorious. His face shone. And that glory passed away. It was transient. And Paul's point is, if that glorious thing was you know, amazing and it came to an end, can you imagine the glory of the eternal that will never pass away? And Moses knew all about that. The author of Hebrews tells us that Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses considered the reproach of Christ, suffering for Jesus, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, something you might call things seen. For Moses was looking to the reward, things unseen. And so by faith, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so to the one suffering today, I say, be reminded of God's promises, be reminded of that eternal reward. See the one who is unseen. That's what it means to have faith. Now, some of you may have been sitting here thinking, um, I just I don't have the kind of faith he's been describing. Um, I've never had this kind of confidence in God's promises about what's to come one day. Uh, I don't even know how to face suffering. It scares me, it angers me, I try not to think about it. Um, and so this morning, I just invite you to hear the message. God has declared Jesus to be the King, the Lord, and the Judge. And He will come one day and figure this all out. And in Jesus, we see that suffering is not meaningless. See, Jesus suffered on a cross, and that wasn't just some tragedy of history. That suffering wasn't meaningless. It accomplished something. Jesus took the suffering deserved by his people. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus suffered in the place of sinners. So that Isaiah can say about Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, he will be satisfied. He will make many to be counted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. Jesus rose again, proving there's life to come. Jesus ascending, ascended, proving he's Lord over all. And he will bring that eternal weight of glory one day. If that's new to you, if that's not something that you've put your confidence in before, I invite you today, put your faith in him this morning. Be renewed in your inner man so that one day your physical body will be resurrected into that glorious new heavens and new earth that no one has ever seen or imagined. And Christian, let me close with this from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen.